67th year at the Feast of Tabernacles, we're instructed to read the book of Deuteronomy. <coughs> and I tried, <coughs> but we only got nearly halfway through it. So I think that we should continue this and finish it, even though it's post-feast. It's still uh, something that God would have had us do, and I think we should finish <coughs> because of that. And there's a lot of instruction in here that's good for us. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. We got to 17 before I flashed back and dealt with the land Sabbath and the year of release and the third tithe cycle. Um, so let's pick it up where we last left off here in chapter 17. You shall not sacrifice to the eternal your God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination to the eternal. It's reminiscent of Malachi 1, which is somewhat of a quote from this, where he says all the tables are filthy, and that which they offer there is blemished and, and is not what it ought to be. Uh, Malachi being a very end-time book. <clears throat> so these directions were given back here, uh, are carried forth to the end time, so the principle is still here. We may not be giving any animal sacrifices at the moment, but at the same time, we still offer our prayers, we still offer offerings and gifts of various kinds, service to others, to God, and we are not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. We're to, to give, to serve, to help, not keep track of what we've done and how much we've done or to pat ourselves on the back and you just do what you can with both hands and you don't stop to consider, well, how much am I doing? I should be proud of myself and pat yourself with both hands. It should be pure before God of desire to serve, not for self-gain, but for God. And we did a lot of that in Worldwide over the years uh, for political favor or for office or whatever it might be. And that was not a true, pure motivation. The motivation has to be to truly serve God and His people, essentially, uh, without blemish. If there be found among you, within any of your gates, which the eternal your God gives you, man or woman, that has worked wickedness in the sight of the eternal your God in transgressing his covenant. We made a covenant with God to keep all his words, even as they made a physical covenant then. Ours is both physical and spiritual. And have gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it be told you, and you have heard of it, and inquired diligently... So don't go just on the rumor, but if you do hear of it, the rumor comes around that someone is worshiping other gods, not doing what they ought to be, and that could be in many, many forms. Uh, then you diligently look into the matter, and behold, if it be true and the thing certain that such abomination is worked in Israel, then you shall bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing, under your gates, even that man or that woman, and you shall stone them with stones till they die. 
At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. One person might have an agenda, uh, so God wants it to be fair that something be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses, because that's a very serious thing when you stone someone to death. Um, the administration of death is not there in the New Testament, though certainly spiritually the principle applies. That if one be taken in a fault, or bringing false doctrine, or whatever, uh, after the second and third admonition, a heretic is to be banished from the church. And in fact, Paul puts it in pretty serious language when he says they'll be turned over to Satan the devil for the destruction of the flesh until they repent. So, in a way, it is a spiritual death because they're dismembered from the body. And that which is dismembered from the body eventually shrivels up and dies. Just as we've seen our friends, our relatives, various ones who left the church for whatever reason, they begin to lose everything they understood and knew. Over a period of time, it just goes away. So that severing themselves from the body will cause spiritual death. And if someone is creating problems, there's some kind of a, let's say, gangrene in the body, whether it be in the foot or the hand, then that part has to be cut off from the rest of the body. And it will shrivel and die unless there is repentance and healing. And if repentance and healing occurs, then it is reattached. Just as Paul said about the man committing incest in 1 Corinthians 5. After a period and a space of repentance, the attitude was different. Then he was, they were ordered to take him back and make him part of the body again. Meantime, the body had rejected that which had rejected it. So he had to get pretty strong about it. They said, well, we, we didn't see anything wrong with that person at the time because their own attitude was wrong. Then when the person was cut off, later repented, they said, well, we don't want you back. Well, why not? If the repentance is there, if change has occurred, if they're not in the same attitude that they were, bring them back and accept them back. Why should the body be without that part? if it's healed and is good again. And the same, not just of sin, but of heresy. If they repent of wrong doctrine and come back, then they should be accepted. We should be enough, or have enough, of the mind of God that we react according to the way He would react. Not as humans do, who bear grudges, who hold things against people forevermore, but God forgives, and he puts it away from himself. We have to be the same way. <clears throat> so, this principle still applies in spirit. All of these things do. So, verse 7, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So that was another safeguard. You know, it's easy to say, that person ought to be killed, why don't you go kill him? 
But if they brought witness, then they were the ones who were to pick up the first stone and cast it. Even as Christ himself said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So he raised that. He says you'd better be very, very careful if you're about to stone someone else to be sure you don't need stone first. But you were the one who had to be the one to cast the first stone if you're the one that brought the witness against that person. So shall you put away the evil from among you. <clears throat> if there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within your gates, then shall you arise and get you up into the place which the eternal your God shall choose. The government will be centered in Jerusalem, which is the place he chose. <clears throat> and if strife or difficulty or arguments arose, they were to go up there. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show you the sentence of judgment. So God had government very clearly in Israel, and he had it very clearly in the New Testament ministry as well. Uh, you don't accomplish anything without government. Men have come to hate government, partially because they are carnal and don't want to follow the rules. They want themselves to be the exception. Everybody else should obey it, but I shouldn't have to. Uh, so there is that side of it, <clears throat> and there is the side of it also where... Uh, well, I lost that thought. Where was I headed with that? There's a side where they see, there, there it comes, where they see corruption in government. And you don't want corrupt government. Now, we see that all around the world today. And it isn't government that's bad, it's corrupt government that is bad. Uh, we experienced that in worldwide, and people went the wrong way. They said, throw government out, rather than we need righteous government. Without government, we cannot accomplish anything. You can't. If your mind does not govern your body, you can't accomplish anything. And it's true all the way up to the Father and the Son in heaven. Government has to be there, and it starts on the personal level. You must govern yourself properly. And then there must be government over in a nation, tens, fifties, hundreds, and so on. Anyway, they were to bring things that needed resolved to Jerusalem. And the church is Jerusalem in the New Testament. And you shall do according to the sentence which they of that place which the eternal shall choose shall show you. And you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you. So if there is strife, if there's a problem, then it is to go to the authorities God has established, and then you are not free to say, well, I don't like that judgment. If God has established government, then we are to follow the decisions that are made. That's the only way you're going to have strife to cease or be minimized. Because if everybody says, well, I don't like what they said, therefore I'll just do what I want to anyway, it's just going to get worse and worse. 
According to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you, and according to the judgment which they shall tell you, you shall do it. And that reminds me again of Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 4 and 5. We should include 4. That a judgment was made within the church. Most followed it. But some only went partway and then lied. And there were two transgressions there, not just one. And God dealt very severely with it, as he will again in the future, when he makes the good and the bad dramatic. You shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you to the right hand nor to the left. Do it the way the judgment comes down. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken to the priest that stands to minister there before the eternal your God or to the judge, even that man shall die. Now isn't that the way God administered it with Korah, with uh, uh, various other ones who rebelled against Moses and the leadership that God had put in place? That's the way he dealt with it, put them to death, their whole families. The earth swallowed them up, or they were stoned. In the case of Achan, uh, presumptuousness to God is as witchcraft. When we presume, we become arrogant. When we presume something beyond the authority that we have been given, then God hates it the same as witchcraft. And in witchcraft, you were to be stoned to death as well. So these things still survive in principle, even though we don't have a big pile of stones outside the hall here. And all people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. We have to be careful not to go beyond the bounds that God has set for us. Uh, the ministry in Ezekiel has said, it says the same thing essentially about that. Not to presume or assume more or take more upon yourself than you ought to. And anyone who sets himself up to be a teacher or to be a minister without having it done through God and through his direction uh, is acting presumptuously. And God hates that. Now, we have in the church today many, many, many people, men and women, who set themselves up to be teachers or ministers, pastors, whatever, and God hates that. It is presuming something that was not endowed upon you from those in control that God put there. We need to think very, very carefully about that. And remember as well, when you start passing out advice, that you are held twice as accountable. God will judge you doubly in what you say, teach, or preach. Now, that goes for someone who is not given teaching capacity, or someone who is, but also teaches anything contrary to this word. Uh, God will hold teachers doubly accountable for everything, more so than someone who is not teaching. I mean, what... We, we can see that, can't we, easily? If you have some views of your own that be, may be counter to what God has revealed or what this book 
actually says, and you keep them to yourself, then God just judges you by yourself and what you are unwilling to accept, see, or learn. But if you then take it to others and spread it, that becomes a virus, and God will deal harshly with that. Heavier judgment will come. Okay, verse 14. When you are come into the land which the eternal your God gives you, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Now, God is not, rec- is not recommending that, but he says you may do it. <clears throat> you shall in any wise set him king over you, whom the eternal your God shall choose. So if you decide to go that route, he says, be sure you consult God about it. You may not set a stranger over you, which is not your brother. We have in America today a situation where we might should have thought more clearly about it. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, whoever the king be, should be of yourselves, not a stranger or a foreigner. He shall not, and I'm talking about race here, I'm talking about foreigner and the legalities as far as his nation is concerned. The racial question is not a question in my mind with Obama. The question is whether he qualifies under the rules of the Constitution and this land. Anyway, once in position, he shall not multiply horses to himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. Uh, Multiplying, it's not wrong to have horses, and if you're a king, you can have a horse, and you can have some horses, as many horses as you need for normal life. But not to multiply horses for the sake of war. Uh, War horses were not to be when they went into the land. If they were to go into Egypt and try to reconquer Egypt, uh, it would be with horses and the military. Not to do that. It would be a different nation of America today had we come into this land and served and obeyed God and not had a military and trusted God to protect us. Now that is an odd, weird-sounding thought, is it not? You can't imagine America without a military. And with the enemies we have, how it would be. But that's what we should have done. But we didn't obey God, and now we have our military to depend upon, and it is fast becoming ineffective. Anyway, for as much as the Eternal has said to you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. So don't go back to the way that you came from. Don't go back to the leeks and onions of Egypt, or this world's society. And Egypt has become a symbol of sin. The culture around us today is symbolic of Egypt, ancient Egypt. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. He could have a few wives, it wasn't a problem, but he wasn't to multiply them. There's a lot of difference between two or three or four or so uh, and a thousand like Solomon had. 
And all the wives of the different nations and foreigners that he had turned his heart away from God. He did what God said don't do here. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. It's okay for the king to have silver and gold. Just don't multiply it greatly because, as Christ said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, as human beings, people like wealth. Wealth is fun. Wealth can buy a lot of things. It can do things. But on the other hand, wealth tends to turn us from God because we begin to look more to the things that money can do for us than we do to God. That's one of the primary reasons over time God has caused his people to be the weak, the base, the poor. Not the rich, the wealthy, the educated, the noble. Because the poor, the weak, and the base will tend to listen to God more. And we have to consider if God is going to begin to bless us in this end and turn his face toward us and do all kinds of things for us, do we have, have we learned the character to be able to handle those things and not turn away from God? That is a key question in his mind. Do we have the character and the capacity to handle blessings? We barely handle trial, trouble, and tribulation without giving up or quitting or sliding along. So, can we handle blessings? Or will it turn us aside? Like great wealth. And there's a warning here from God. A camel does not go through the eye of a needle very easy. The same ease with which a rich man goes into the kingdom of God. Are you ready for blessings? We need to ponder those things. Can we handle it? Because God says he's going to bless us here at the end. We seek him with our hearts. He has to know our heart before he can bless us. That's what it boils down to. He will hold back. He will not until he's convinced that we can handle it and do what we should with it. And that's a tough test. So that's why he says, when you seek me with your whole heart, then will I turn my face to you and bless you. He doesn't want us to destroy ourselves because we can't handle blessing. That's, he wants us in his kingdom. That's the bottom line. Okay, and it shall be, that king, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, verse 18, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And that shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Eternal his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. The Bible 
For a copy of the law was to be his constant companion. He was to read it every day. God told that to Joshua just before they went into the land, to read God's word daily, and then you shall have good success, is the way he put it there. Good success is doing the things that God says to do. That will create success. Well, we're here to be kings, aren't we? Kings and priests in the world tomorrow. So this applies very directly to each and every one of us. We need to have this Word of God, and we need to have our nose in it on a daily basis. Now, you might not have time every day to do a deep study on a particular topic and spend hours at it. That isn't the point. The point is, we need to pick it up in the morning, in the evening, sometime during the day, and we need to read it. Sometimes I'm tired and I don't feel like studying, but I can turn to Psalms or somewhere and read a few chapters and think about those things. Uh, and I try to do that every day. Some days it even slips by me, and then I feel bad about it. But uh, we need to do it every day. That, that should be a goal and a purpose and a plan for us. And here's the reasoning, verse 20, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. We need to be meek, to be humble, to be teachable, to be of service to one another. And God's Word teaches us that. Because God hates the proud. And he turns away from the proud. But he loves the humble and the meek. And when we read God's Word, what does it do? It tends to humble us because it shows how great he is and how small we are. So then that humility needs to be translated to each other so that we're willing to work with and help one another and strengthen one another instead of rising above one another. And they turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So it isn't war horses and military that prolongs your life and keeps your kingdom intact. It's serving God and living by his laws and his ways. And he says he will prolong your life. You know, the commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that you, your days may be long on the earth, also refers to our heavenly father and our mother of the church. If our attitude is right toward God in heaven, and the mother he's put over us, then we will prolong our days. Things will work smoothly in the family. So honoring your father and your mother has more to do than just physical families. All right, chapter 18. <clears throat> the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Eternal made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren, this is speaking of land. The eternal is their inheritance, as he has said to them, Numbers 18. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep. And they shall give it to the priest, the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw. The first fruit also of your corn, of your wine, of your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep shall you give him. For the Eternal, your God, has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Eternal, him and his sons forever. 
And if a Levite come from any of the gates out of all Israel, where he sojourned, and come with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Eternal shall choose, he leaves his home, leaves his friendly environs, and goes to Jerusalem. Then he shall minister in the name of the Eternal his God, as all his brethren the Levites do, which stand there before the Eternal. So there's a choice that can be made to either stay where you were born, where your Levitical family was, or go up to Jerusalem. Then they shall have like portions to eat beside that which comes of the sale of his patrimony, or his land that he had, or what he, what he had at home. When you are come into the land which the eternal your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. Uh, they were going into a land that by then had been inhabited by others. And when God sent Abraham there, uh, and later these people, they had to deal with the people that were already there. Don't follow their customs and their ways. I had recently a, an Indian chief that wanted to purify me with smoke from his smudge. And everybody else there was bringing it with their hands over themselves. They wanted that smoke from his smudge. Well, that's false religion and shamanism and devil worship. And I said, no thank you when he came to me. I prayed this morning. And uh, he went ahead and gave it a couple of those, but I didn't say, come on. I, I was in this position. <laughs> I didn't want that. So if we have those in the land who are trying to teach false religion or put something on you that is ungodly, you're not to accept it. I'm sure I offended to some degree the Indians that were in the circle, but that's just too bad. Thirty minutes later, he wanted me to be a board member. So, whatever. Uh, verse 10, There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination to the eternal, and because of these abominations, eternal your God does drive them out from before you. So anything to do with the spirit world and spiritism and Satanism, and that includes the Protestant churches and the Catholic church and the Muslims and all of them, we're not to have anything to do with that religion, whatever it might be. When they, I've been at sporting events over the years, and they ask you to bow your head for the benediction or whatever prayer they say beforehand, I generally just stand there. I'm not going to bow. Now, they think they're praying to the eternal Creator God in heaven, but they're not. They don't know who, the, who they're praying to. Christ said, you worship, you know not what. If they don't worship God in spirit and in truth, then they're worshiping another god and don't even know it. That's how deceived they are. 
And I'm not going to bow my head or say amen to those prayers. Now, they may look around and see that I'm not bowing my head, but on the other hand, if they're looking around, they're not bowing theirs either. So, not my problem, it's their problem. Verse uh, 13, you shall be perfect with eternal your God, or upright in my margin. For these nations which they you shall possess, hearkened unto observers of times and to diviners, but as for you, the eternal your God has not suffered you so to do. The eternal your God will raise up to you a prophet from the midst of you, of your brethren like me. Unto him shall you hearken. So God says, don't go to the religions of this world. He said, I will raise up people to lead you where you should go. And in today's church, everybody wherever they are, needs to be very careful that they find those that will lead them toward this Word and toward God, not soften it, not drop part of it, but to become stronger and stronger in it. And that's what I try to do. You see, we got scattered because we were not faithful enough to God's Word. We did not have a high enough standard for ourselves, nor did the church have a high enough standard for us. So if you get blown away for having too low a standard or not following the standard that is before you, then you have to take stock. You have to wake up. You have to seek more oil. You have to look for a higher standard, a higher level of performance than what you had before. Now, if we err here, I would prefer it to be in the direction of being too strong with what we teach and do than too weak. Now, it's preferable to have a perfect balance. It's preferable to get everything just the way God wants it and not be either too strong or too lax. <coughs> but it was for being too lax that we got scattered. So if we're going to err in any direction, it would be better to go that way, you know, rather than stay in the same ditch you were in that got you in trouble in the first place. So, should we be stricter than we were in worldwide? Yes, we should. By far. And we should be learning more out of this word instead of less. We should not being, be being told, just stay here and everything will be fine. You'll go to a place of safety and be in the kingdom of God. That's what we were being told before, is it not? That's not good enough. That's not strong enough. That's not righteous enough. We have to raise our level. According to all that you desire of the eternal your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the eternal my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. He said, I don't want to hear that anymore. Uh, you better listen. And the eternal said to me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. 
I will raise him up, a prophet, from among their brethren, like to you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I shall command them. So he did that with Joshua uh, when Moses died. (coughs) And they looked upon Joshua and feared him as they had Moses. But then when Joshua died, the nation fell apart because there was not righteous leadership there. And what happened when unrighteous leadership took over in the church of God here at the end? Fell apart. We were already pretty dicey before Herbert Armstrong died, but when Tkachis took over, it just fell apart. So I'll put his words in, or my words in his mouth, God says, and he shall speak to them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So it's not just the ministry or the leadership that God has set that we need to be concerned about. God says if they don't listen to the ones that God sends, he will require it of them in his judgment. So we need to be very careful. But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. So he says here, don't raise yourself up or presume to be a prophet, a teacher. And prophecy, or prophet just simply means inspired speaking. So it's both assuming the position and then what is preached that is a problem. Both, not just one. Some say, well, I'm speaking the truth, so I can go ahead and teach. No. He says, don't presume to teach, and if you are teaching, you better not pull them away from God or after other gods. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the eternal has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the eternal, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the eternal has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. You don't have to respect that which does not happen if someone prophesies these things, whatever they might be, and they don't happen. It's like someone recently said that he and his wife were the two witnesses and they were going to go to Jerusalem and, and uh, things were going to come to an end and the tribulation was going to start. And he said even before he went over there that if this does not happen, I will not be in the ministry anymore. So he went over there and, didn't, and it didn't happen. And then he said when he came back, I found an excuse to continue on. Now, God says if somebody puts himself in that position and it doesn't happen, then don't worry about him. We need to be careful <laughs> what we pronounce. You know, I, I try to do that. I try to say, well, now, this is speculation. You know, this is a possibility. Here's maybe another possibility. Here's some things that this could be talking about. Because we don't always know clearly everything. But let's not make great pronouncements of things that are going to happen or else, and then, you know, set dates and all kinds of things. Uh, we did that in Worldwide, didn't we? 
And it caused all kinds of problems. We set a date, 1972 and 1975. And then we changed it to 82, and on and on it went. Or they did. As far as I'm concerned, it is the events and our compliance with God that matters the most. The timing, I think soon, is close enough. Do we need to concern ourselves with months, days, years? We can hope, you know, maybe hope things will be different by Passover. Uh, It does make very strong promises of blessings in the first month. But it doesn't say why year. So we can hope in any year upcoming that this is the year. And we can even get our hopes up, our prayers up. But we need to be careful not to say this is going to happen and then if it doesn't we look stupid so we need to be careful with those things we can always live in hope you know hope is one of the big three isn't it faith and love we talk more about but hope is very important and hope is based on looking forward to something that you wish for and want, and it is a positive emotion. It is not hope against hope, or I know it ain't going to happen, but... No, it's, it's a looking forward and projecting our emotions towards things God has said and living in a positive mode of thinking, of looking forward. Hope then pulls you forward something out there you want and you hope for it. It's like the donkey with the carrot. He sees what is ahead and he keeps walking toward it, but it seems like he'll never reach it because it's tied to the end of his nose. But there is a time when it's going to happen. So always look forward and hope. The Jews have a saying. I don't borrow much from the Jews. But this principle is there. Next year in Jerusalem, that's one of their greetings, one of the things they say to each other, next year in Jerusalem. So they're not expressing that that as a prophecy, they're expressing it as a hope that they live by. And we can have that same type of hope. But each year we look upon it as maybe this is the year. And we're getting close enough, we don't have to worry about, is this the millennium, or is this the decade, or the well, the century. I think we've gotten it down now where we can say, probably, this is the decade. And I don't mean starting in 2000, but I mean within 10 years from now, I think a lot of these things we're reading about are going to be history, not prophecy. But I'm not going to say that uh, in, in those terms. But I think that we're getting close enough that we can say next year, next year, and live in hope because it is close enough The year by year we're getting closer and closer to the actual fulfillment. I think we're in, should be in that mode today. Chapter 19. When the eternal your God has cut off the nations whose land the eternal your God gives you, and you succeed them, 
and dwell in their cities and in their houses. <coughs> and Isaiah 15 and 16 and 23 and various other places indicate that we will inherit some of those things. So we are in a position, again, of coming into the land just as these people were. And we need to keep that very much in mind when we read these scriptures. You shall separate three cities for you in the midst of the land which the eternal your God gives you to possess it. You shall prepare a way and divide the coasts of your land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit into three parts that every slayer may flee there. If someone's falsely accused, this was in a big physical nation, maybe it won't be as much of a problem, I hope, in the church of God established when the remnant comes together, because that will finally be a time of righteousness. So maybe this will not have to apply on a physical level, just like stoning doesn't. But they need opportunity for mercy. And that's what this was, having cities of refuge. This is the case of the slayer which shall flee there, that he may live. Whoso kills his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hated not in time past, <coughs> as when a man goes into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetches a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the health and lights upon his neighbor that he die, he shall flee into one of those cities and live. So he actually killed his neighbor, but he didn't really mean it. The axe head flew off. Strange we should get to this section. We're talking about cutting wood tomorrow. <coughs> Be careful with those chainsaws, huh? Lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot, heavy emotion in other words, and overtake him because the way is long and slay him, whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch as he hated him not in time past. It wasn't something he plotted and planned, but truly was an accident, but still there was death. Wherefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for you, and if the Eternal your God enlarge your coast, as he has sworn to your fathers, and give you all the land which he promised to give unto your fathers. That's interesting that they may have been given a smaller portion at first, and then that was later expanded. Uh, the promised land originally that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob trod may have been here, but it may not have been the whole continent. But then God expanded it later when he brought us back in. And now he's about to take it away again because of sin. <clears throat> but just an interesting sidelight. If you shall keep all these commandments to do them, which I command you this day, to love the eternal your God and to walk ever in his ways, then you shall add three cities more for you beside these three. Be sure there's one close enough that if somebody accidentally kills his neighbor, he can get there before somebody runs him down and kills him. That innocent blood be not shed in your land, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance, and so blood be upon you. But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him from there, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. So if it's murder as opposed to an accident, then it's dealt with differently. And I think the principle applies here with spiritual death. You know, sometimes if we offend someone and offend them so badly that maybe they go away or quit or whatever, then that is spiritual murder. 
Now, it could be accidental, couldn't it? Sometimes we say things to people that might hurt them very deeply, and we may not even realize it. But if you do it on purpose to hurt them, then that's different, and to drive them away. So, is something accidental, or is it predetermined and done on purpose to hurt? There's, there's a lot of difference there. Verse 14, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the eternal your God gives you to possess it. Don't steal land. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sins at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. And that's Matthew 18 all over again. If someone sins against you, go to them individually. Now, that doesn't mean if they sin, period. Sometimes uh, sins are not directly against you, but they may be something that needs to be dealt with. But if they sin against you, and most anything we do that each of us sees is in some ways a sin against us, because it could cause us to go the same way, maybe. It's not a good example for us. Anyway, it's established back here that God does not do things on the word of one person who might have a grudge against somebody. So, if they don't listen to you, then you get another person or two or three and uh, confront them, or three witnesses, you and one or two others. And then if they don't listen to that, then uh, the matter's been established, then it needs to go to someone in a, a position of authority to do something about it. That's when it comes to the church in Matthew uh, 18. And even against the world, God establishes in the mouth of two witnesses uh, that the world is contrary to God, and he will not destroy the earth before he has those two witnesses go before them and tell them what their problem is. And once that is done, he can then unleash the horrors upon them. Although a lot of the horror in the Great Tribulation is going to come upon them at that time if they directly do not listen. In other words, if you go to Chicago or Rome or somewhere and tell them, and they don't listen there on the spot, then plagues will come. But it has to be established that way. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Eternal, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. Now that tells you right there who it's talking about when it says, then take it to the church in Matthew 18. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't mean that you take a matter and have somebody have to stand up in front of the whole congregation and have a judgment made. That was done a few times in Worldwide back over the decades, and it was not the proper thing to do. But they were to be taken to the priests and the judges or whoever is in charge in those days. Well, those days extend to today. And that's the way God set it up then, and it is still uh, the same principle. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. 
And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and is testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had thought to have done to his brother. If he wanted his brother stoned, and he finds out he's lying about his brother, then you stone him instead. That's fair. God says don't bring false witness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So shall you put evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And your eyes shall not pity. Well, don't do that. Don't be so harsh. God's the one that makes the rules. God is the one who has a lake of fire. God is the one who can take away body and soul. Now, God is merciful and willing to forgive. But we need to be very, very careful. Now, back then, uh, under the administration of death, if it were a physical sin, they were to be put to death. No pity. Just do it. But life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now chapter 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and a people more than you, be not afraid of them. Now here's instruction and emotion and control and mental approach. For the eternal your God is with you, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now this is assuming that we are following all these things that Moses is talking about, isn't it? If we will be obeying God and serving God and worshiping God and putting his word in his way first, he will be with us. But if we cast him aside, how can we ask for his protection and help? Then we live in fear. And it shall be, when you are come near to the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. Now, they were still fighting physically back then. We don't do that today. God says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18:36. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight? But my kingdom is not of this world, therefore my servants do not fight. So we don't go to war. We trust God to take care of us. But under that administration, as a physical nation, God did at times have them go to war physically. Now, we go to war spiritually, don't we? Against higher powers and evil spirits. So we still go to battle. But if we're obeying God, he will take care of us. Anyway, when you do go to battle, the priest is to go ahead of you and speak to the people. I suppose that means that the priest also is to be fearless. Because if they are to go out ahead of the people <coughs> before the battle commences, then they also have to swallow their fear. Anyway, they shall say, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day into battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be you terrified because of them. For the eternal your God is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now that harkens back to Haggai and Zephaniah, where he says, Fear not, 
Be strong, be of good courage. That's in Joshua, it's in Isaiah, it's in several different places. God will go before us. Now, we have battles ahead of us, and we will have people with ability and military that will come against us. The whole world, a whole new world order will come against God's people. Are we ready for that? There's some interesting things, I think, tomorrow night in Bible study about this very thing. Anyway, verse 5, And the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. So he's giving them ways to get out of going to battle. And what man is he that has planted a vineyard and has not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man take her. God does not want the timid, the fearful, the weak, the ones that have excuses, or their heart would be somewhere else, like in their vineyard, or a new wife, or a, something of that nature. He wants people who have their heart in what they're doing. Verse 8, And the officers shall speak further to the people. The priest has his say, and then the officers as well. And they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. Remember the story of Gideon? It fits right in here. He kept saying, Let these go home, let these go home, send those home. We'll get down to what I want to work with, God said. <coughs> But he didn't want the fearful there, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. You know, fear can spread very easily. And one person could be there naysaying and doubting and not being ready to go forward, and it can cause the hearts of others to turn away. Now, we're very soon facing some of these very things. In fact, I think God has opened and is still opening some doors. But there are always the naysayers, the faint-hearted, the unbelievers, those who are not willing to, with an open mind, prove whether these things are so, but their mind is in, this can't be. There is a huge difference in approach there. The Bereans, he said, are what we are to be like, to search the Scriptures whether these things be so. That is a positive approach to see what God might or might not be doing. There is never any instruction throughout all of God's Word to stand back and say, I don't think so, show me. There is no room for that in the heart and mind of a true Christian. We need to be open-minded to examine and not make snap judgments or say, well, that can't be. How do you know what can or cannot be? How do you know what God might or might not do? The thing to do 
is not, wait a minute. No, it's, I'm going to wait a minute while I study God's Word. How many naysayers, truly, have you ever known, when something would come up, who would go home and start going through their Bible backward and forward, <clears throat> trying to find every passage that might apply to whatever is on the table at the moment. Very rare. Usually someone who is in a, no, can't be, negative type of frame of mind does not search the Scriptures, whether it be so, but they complain to whoever will listen about how it could not be. And they never really check it out. That is an ungodly, unchristian approach. Negativity is not part of God's mind or his mindset. Positively searching the scriptures, whether it be so, is God's approach. I try to do that for my sake and yours. Now, when Passover came up, I did not immediately endorse it because of one or two verses or words. I started going through my Bible diligently to search out every place that it could possibly be mentioned and see if they all fit together. That's what we should do. We should not make snap decisions based on one or two verses. What is God's entire mind on a subject? If you do any less than that, you're not doing due diligence, and you're not being faithful to God and His Word. So God says, weed out those who are faint of heart. Those who have negative emotions, who will cause others to have negative emotions. We must have a smaller number who believe. A smaller number who are ready to move forward. A smaller number who will search out as the Bereans did and find out whether these things be so. God is not in a numbers game. He is in a righteousness game. He is in a serve me with your whole heart game. And you must worship in spirit and in truth. Emotion is not enough. There are a lot of Protestants out there who have a lot of emotion in their heart for whatever Lord it is that they worship. They have a lot of emotion, a lot, and all they can talk about is love, love, love. That is not enough. It must be in spirit and attitude and in truth. And thy word is truth. So it must be established in every scripture possible to get God's whole mind on a subject. And that is a positive approach. 
we cannot have a situation where one man's faint heart makes others have a faint heart. Weed those out. Send them home. And it shall be, when the officers have made an end of speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. When you come near to a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace to it. <coughs> you shouldn't have a warlike attitude and let's just kill them all. That should not be the approach. Maybe you are to take that city, but you examine their attitude and give them an opportunity. Don't be in a hurry to fight. Settle the matter in the way. And that's what Christ said, didn't he? Uh, it's better to settle the matter with your neighbor or whoever it is that you're fighting with on the way instead of going to court with them. That doesn't work out too well usually. When you come near a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace to it, and it shall be if it and it shall be if it make you answer of peace and open to you, then it shall be that all the people that is bound there shall therein shall be tributaries to you, and they shall serve you. If they're willing to come under your government, your guidance, your authority, then they will serve you. This is where in places where God had told them to go, not just anywhere. And if it will make no peace with you, but will make war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Eternal your God has delivered it into your hands, you shall smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. Kill all the men. Give them a chance at peace and service. And if they will not accept that, then kill every man with the sword. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shall you take to yourself, and you shall eat the spoil of your enemies, which the eternal your God has given you. So kill all the men. You can keep the women and children and cows and everything in the city. Now, that's for a city far off. There's a different rule here, which we'll see. Verse 15, Thus you shall do unto all the cities which are very far off from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. That's, if they're way out there, along with, they, could have, they could have had an empire. It could be stretched out over a big area. But of the cities of these people, which the eternal your God does give you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. So there was specific land given to Israel that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, you can conquer other lands if you want, and they can be your servants. But the land in which God has given you, you kill everything that breathes. You shall utterly destroy them. Namely, and then he gives a list here of people who were in the land that they were to go into. And they were supposed to destroy these people utterly. Man, woman, child, cow, horse, everything. They didn't do it. And we still will face those peoples yet again. But here are they, or here they are. Namely, the Hittites the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the eternal your God has commanded you. Remember Uriah the Hittite? It was his wife Jezebel that David took. 
and Uriah the Hittite should not have been there. If they had done what God told them in the days when Moses turned it over to Joshua and they went into the land, they would have destroyed every Hittite, man, woman, and child, and there would have been no Hittites around. Now, that doesn't mean David might not have found a different woman, but the Hittite should not have even been there at that point in time. So, destroy them, verse 18, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done to their gods, so should you sin against the Eternal, your God. When you shall besiege a city a long time and making, making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them, for you may eat of them, and you shall not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life to employ them in the siege. So if you're trying to take a walled city, you're not to cut the fruit trees down and use them as part of the siege. Only the trees which you know that they be not trees for food, <clears throat> you shall destroy and cut them down, and you shall build bulwarks against the city that makes war with you until it be subdued. Not much room for bunny huggers there. You could cut down trees to make war, as long as they weren't fruit trees that provided food. I think we have actually time for one more chapter here, and may even finish it before quitting time, so I'll, I'll try to get one more. If one be found slain in the land which the eternal your God gives you to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who has done the murder, then your elders and your judges shall come forth, and they shall measure to the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next to the slain man, so they, they check and see how close the body was to whatever cities were around it, even the elders of that city shall take a heifer, which has not been worked with, and which is not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer to a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, in other words, a wilderness area, not planted, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Eternal your God has chosen to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Eternal, and by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. We discussed that a little earlier about God having set up government and jurisdiction within both ancient Israel and spiritual Israel today. And the, all, all the elders of that city that are next to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. So... An unexplained murder, one where they cannot find the perpetrator, this was be to done. This was to be done. Uh, this was also done in part to flush out and bring confession. Because when you slew that heifer in that valley, you were saying, Our hands, our city, have not done this. And you could be bearing false witness, could you not? Be merciful, O Eternal, unto your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, <clears throat> and lay not innocent blood unto your people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. So they were to make a plea to God. We don't know who did this. 
As far as we know, it wasn't in our city, please have mercy on us, because if it was the nearest to your city, then you were probably the one most likely to be investigated, right? Just like the mate is always the first one they investigate in a homicide, the one closest. So shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Eternal. Verse 10, When you go forth to war against your enemies, and the Eternal your God has delivered them into your hands, and you have taken them captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire to her that you would have her to your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and clip her nails. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, in other words, the clothing that she wore in the land that she had been in, and shall remain in your house and bewail her father and her mother a full month, and after that you shall go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. So when they subjugated other areas, they could take, if they were cities far away, now if they were nearby cities, they were to kill man, woman, and child. But if it were further away and not part of the land that God gave them, then they could take those women as their wives if they wanted them. But they had to treat them with respect, too. The women had to be willing to put off the land, the garments from the land they came from. In other words, accept your garments, accept your lifestyle and your culture, not that which she came from. And she has a full month then to get over the fact that her family maybe had been killed, subjugated, and get used to the idea that she was in a new home with a new husband pending. And this shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall let her go where she will. But you shall not sell her at all for money. You shall not make merchandise of her because you have humbled her. So you took her in as a wife, and then if you didn't like her, you could put her away, but you couldn't sell her as a slave. So even in polygamy, God established rules that they had to show honor and respect to multiple wives, not just one. And then it shows favoritism here in verse 15. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they, like uh, Leah and Rachel, for instance, not maybe hated in Leah's case, but not loved the same way as the other, but if it is that way, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, (laughs) and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be, when he makes his sons to inherit that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. So whichever one was actually the firstborn, God said, had to remain that way. You couldn't play favorites. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, he will not hearken to them, they will not bend to the parent's will, 
And even with punishment, they still won't. They still keep their rebellious attitude. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall save the elders of his city. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall you put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Pretty strong statement, isn't it? Bring your son out, your daughter, to have them stoned to death because they're rebellious and won't listen. But then... These are parallels of spiritual principles which we observe today. We disfellowship our sons or our daughters or put them out of the camp if they are rebellious and will not live according to God's ways. If they want to go the way of the world, then they need to be turned out with the world. Like the prodigal son. He went ahead and gave him his inheritance. says, you don't want to live the way I live, go. And when you find yourself eating with the pigs and you get tired of that, then repent and you can come back. But God will not tolerate rebellion in his house. Now when it comes time for the marriage of the Lamb, If you have those who have not repented and put on the wedding clothes of righteousness, they will be cast out and into a lake of fire. So these things that God is establishing back here, just in a physical nation, to keep peace and order, by principle apply to the church spiritually, to put those away who will not follow. And then in the kingdom of God, he will do the exact same thing. Verse 22, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be, and he be, and he be to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. So they had some options, I guess. Generally, they stoned with stones. That's usually what he says, but hanging on a tree is also a possibility. I guess maybe some cases you could have a choice in life. Would you rather be hung or stoned? (laughs) His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God that your land be not defiled, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance. So there's room for mercy. God did not have a prison system. He did not incarcerate people for rehabilitation as we do today. If you did a crime, you were put to death. And the rest of Israel heard heard and feared. God does not believe in torture. He does not believe in incarceration uh, for human beings. Now, Satan apparently cannot be destroyed, so he will be locked away. 
But God does not do that with us. Uh, he, you either are forgiven and live, or you die. That's just the way He does it. It's, it's a finality, one way or the other, not something in between. So, prison system is not God's way. There was a city of refuge where you could go until something was established so that you would not be killed prematurely until proven guilty. But as far as, I mean, you could come out of the city of refuge anytime you wanted, but you might be under the penalty of death if you did. So you could stay there voluntarily. They didn't have wire around it. Uh, they didn't have guards to keep you in. You just came out at your own risk. So there was that situation where you could make a choice of whether you would live in a sense in prison or whether you would face the penalty. But if it was proved that you had killed and murdered, then the elders of the city came and you were turned over to them and they executed you. That's the way God did it. Well, we still finished a little early and finished another chapter, so we'll pick it up in chapter 22 next time. Or next time. Yeah.